Supreme Court appointment would be a step down for Richard at this point. Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White. He's Richard Epstein, and we'll just jump right in. We are recording this the Monday after the Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Kentanji Brown-Jackson. Richard, what's your take on it? He's going to get confirmed. And my view about all of this is I think Supreme Court hearings on confirmations have become ordeals. And the fact that this one seemed to have passed with relatively calm is, I think, a strike in the right direction. It's been quite striking that the Democratic commentators have tried to repeat to treat the Republicans as though they're pariahs, not worthy of any condescension or respect. Uh, the irony, of course, is the contrast between this and the Kavanaugh hearings was absolutely stunning and the exact the opposite direction. I would wish for nobody to ever have to go through these things. And I'll just say in my opening teaser, I've long taken the position confirmed in this particular case uh, that I don't think the nominee should really appear at any of these confirmation hearings because all you're going to do is see somebody play a game of gotcha. So the low moment on this is somebody asked uh, her whether she knew what a woman was or a man and she says she wasn't a biologist. And you know That's the kind of answer which just gives chortles and chuckles to everybody. Uh, But there's a reason why she would say something like that. She doesn't want to get drawn into the transgender debates and all the rest of that stuff. And that's a good reason not to put somebody there. I don't like it when people kind of trap candidates on this stuff. I think there are many reasons why people might want to oppose her. And I'm sure the nomination will not be received on unanimous confirmation, given that some Republicans are strongly against her. Uh, But I think it's better to have a debate about her and whether or not she's a closet progressive. And if so, whether that's a good or a bad thing. But having her participate in the debate just leads to all sorts of evasions and the like. Uh, So uh, I think we escaped relatively well. My prediction is she will be confirmed. She'll probably get a few Republican votes, which will guide something to the legitimacy of the appointment. And then it's on to general business. Where will she end up? Um, She's a Breyer clerk. My guess is she will be to the left of Breyer, but probably will be uh, somewhere between Kagan and Sotomayor when it comes to figuring out where the the Supreme Court spectrum is going to lie. So that's my initial take. Richard, when you say that this one, this hearing was relatively calm, I feel like the word relatively is doing a lot of work there. Yes. Because what's, I mean, maybe relative to to the Kavanaugh hearings and and so on, but. This is the new normal. Um, There's never going to be a hearing now, which is not going to be ideologically divided. And so long as that's the case, people are going to try to score points. Look, this is not a hearing which was divided because the outcome was in serious doubt. What's happening is everybody is playing to a larger audience. Uh, What's going to happen with this uh, exchange with, I guess it was uh, Senator Black. Uh, uh, when it gets played in October in the next election. Here you have a defendant, you know, Democrat who doesn't know the difference between boys and girls. How could we possibly allow people like that to run our school boards? Uh, So I think that's part of the reason. Uh, The reason the hearings are terribly divided is because this country is deeply polarized. I think putting the nominee up there uh, makes it, I think, even more divisive because uh, either there's one side trying to uh, paper over in glory and the other side is trying to tear it down. And the truth lies somewhere in between. So 
Uh, I thought that this was relatively good, uh, compared to even the Gorsuch hearing or the Barrett hearing, um, or the Bork hearing or the Thomas hearing. I mean, this has been sort of a progress. The last relatively tranquil hearing that we had were for Brian, um, and for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's a long time ago. Uh, world's a different place now. And remember, in 1986, how many negative votes were there, Adam? Do you recall when Nino Scalia came up for nomination? Uh, he was 98 nothing, and That I is believe, correct. And, two and, the, people. and the two abstainers were, might have been Barry Goldwater and another Republican. They weren't there. Right. right. They, were, they were not in the room. They couldn't make the hearing. Right. They weren't abstaining in the sense having doubt. Right, right, right. And so, you know, then you go to Bork and it's 50-42 in the opposite direction. Um, that change, of course, 1987, it's now, what, 35 years ago? Some ridiculous number like that. Uh, that marks the modern era. Uh, there was a slight reprise, I said, during the two Clinton years. But even starting with Roberts and Alito, there was some degree of tension higher than there is today. And I think the Democrats are more responsible for this than the Republicans. In part, that's because they're always the minority party in the Supreme Court. And so they have a measure of desperation that the Republicans don't have. No glory in this particular situation. Uh, but all one hopes is that we get this thing through. And what's going to happen, I suspect, and tell me if I'm wrong, there will then be a Republican Senate uh, starting in the actually in January of next year, which will completely transform the nature of the judicial confirmation process. And the long-term story is we have to worry about stalemate and compromise for any of this thing to work going forward. Because the polarization won't cease. It's just that divided authority will grind this process down to an agonizingly slow continuation. That, of course, started uh, about 20 odd years ago with Miguel Estrada, right? Can't confirm this guy. He's too good. He may be a Hispanic who makes it to the Supreme Court. We cannot allow that. And they never gave him a hearing. Well, surely the uh, surely the the likely change in the Senate this fall is what informed Justice Breyer's decision to leave when he did. And and throughout the hearings, I kept thinking to myself, if Trump hadn't punted away the Georgia Senate seats to the Democrats, I wonder how this would have played out. I wonder whether we would have had hearings at all. I wonder if the Republican senators would have tried to give uh, give give this this vacancy the the Merrick Garland treatment for a solid three years. We'll never know. Unless there's a uh, a, a surprise uh, vacancy in the the second half of President Biden's term, Look, I don't think there'll be a vacancy that will be left open for years. I think there'll be a basically a very bitter and difficult negotiation to get a respectable conservative Democrat to fill that seat. That is, all of a sudden, Joe Manchin will become the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, not only in the Congress, but also on the various courts. But I anticipate that happening in full power. It will be more at the appellate level than at the district court level, though there'll be some of it there. Uh, but given the way it's in which these sentiments have now divided, I, I think it's utterly impossible uh, that you will be able to get through any regular bona fide left-wing progressive onto any court in the United States um, unless there's a quid pro quo. And Maybe. so the question is, what's the division? Is it one for one, two for two, two for one? I think you know, those are there. And remember, the Democrats played exactly that tough game when the Republicans had the presidency. I think it was under Bush. And the question was, uh, the second Bush, is that how these judicial appointments will go through. There's too much of a need for additional judges, given natural attrition on the one hand and the expansion of the population on the other, to leave the seats vacant. 
So what you're going to do is going to be like a labor negotiation. And there'll be periods of inactivity, which is equivalent to a strike. But uh, I can't conceive peace and goodwill returning. Uh, my good colleague, Liga Bernstein, has always said that in negotiations, there are relationship-preserving moves and relationship-ending moves. And most of the statements that are made in this particular hearing by both the folks on the Senate floor and the committee and by the commentators are relationship-ending situations. So it's going to be a conflictual rather than a cooperative venture. And I think the Republic will be the worst for it. Now, to back up to your big point, I just totally disagree about the the question about whether nominees should be there. Um, Good. I I love it. Well, granted, uh, the hearings sometimes get ugly. Although, if anything, Richard, I think you were too easy on the Democrats. I don't remember anything like this from Republicans during the Kagan and Sotomayor hearing. Uh, Kagan, your former your former colleague, Elena Kagan, her her confirmation hearing was pretty lighthearted. But but I'd say it's good to have the nominees there for a few reasons. One is, I think, taking the nominee out of the room would actually make the senators even worse. Um, They would say things in the Senate um, that they would never say if the nominee was were were actually there seeing them face to face. So I think having the nominee there probably improves, however sad it might be to think, but, but somehow improves the quality of the hearings. Second, I think that it's very, very important for the American people to get to meet the nominee uh, for for him or her to put their own best foot forward. This is the, really the main opportunity for the public to see the nominee and 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 hear from her or him. And and that's a good thing in our system where the people really don't get any say over what the nominee does once she or he is appointed. And third, I think it's good to have the nominee there because for all of the ugliness of confirmation hearings, I think it's pretty amazing how the American political system more or less stops for a week whenever a Supreme Court justice is nominated. And we have, I mean, amid all these sort of ridiculous arguments that we, we see in the hearings, you also see really interesting and important conversations about the court, about the Constitution, what it means to have, to have a court in our system, what the justices think of precedent and other things. I understand that these things often become platitudes and that they are the the answers are strategized down to to levels of 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 vapidity that that are regretful but i think it's a good thing to have this moment in our system every couple of years uh and and i think that if you took the nominee out uh you the, the hearings would get about as much attention as any senate um legislative markup session gets which is to say none that's terrific well, thank you. We'll, we'll just end the podcast I, mean, no, right there. I, I think look, I, I understand what you're saying. And, and you know, here's the interesting speculation. Um, are you going to start to say extreme statements when there's somebody there who cannot be put on the spot? Uh, there's a much greater chance that it'll make you look like the fool rather than somebody else. I would also mention that we managed to go over 150 years in our system with the rules is the way I said it. If I'm not mistaken on the history, the first of the hearings that I remember as being genuinely controversial in the modern times was putting Louis Dembitz Brandeis on the United States Supreme Court. The hearing lasted five days. He never appeared. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of important issues there, including 
do we put a Jewish member on the United States Supreme Court? And we survived. I think it was Felix Frankfurt who wanted to do the testimony in 1938 or 9. And that sort of started the other kind of trend. Uh, but I'm going to do the following massive concession to you. Uh, given the fact that we are here, we will never be there. Uh, what you have said is such that it would be utterly impossible to do this because now what happens is that the candidate said, look, you know, I have my record, comment on it. It would be treated as massive evasion and, and so that the nomination would fail if they did this. But I, I'm lamenting the fact that we have changed the situation. I think it's an irreversible change. But uh, my own wish list would still be uh, to have this debate on the merit. And, you know. What's the other thing you could certainly have? And this is what we don't do now. I take it no Supreme Court nominee, is this correct, actually would give an interview on Meet the Press or something like that? Yeah, surely that's right. And, and the question is like, why? Um, it's an interesting question because that would be the obvious alternative, a very different kind of setting. And it wouldn't be the people who are voting on the nomination to do it. Uh, I think the explanation that one has is there are only two kinds of interviews you could have under those circumstances, either rig softballs on the one hand or a, a basically a brawl on the other. And the candidates don't benefit very much from the first. They look like toadies and they could be hurt very much by the second. And so I think in effect, I'm going to say, my first place world is never going to start to take place. And so what I want, Adam, is for you to run the hearings. Okay. Yeah. That Richard, will solve the problem. That's civility, actually, my friend. That's, that's actually, I, I think, the Cliff's Notes version of every every book, almost every book you've written is. Well, we won't get the perfect world that I have in mind. So here's the best we can do in this this low fallen world we find ourselves in. Well, yes, that started with me with takings, I guess. Right. Well, uh, on that one, you actually prevailed. Well, no, I have not prevailed. I, I, what happened is we changed the, I think we changed the second derivative and slowed it down. And then we changed the first derivative and reversed it a little bit. Uh, but if we're talking about takings, unless you basically rethink Euclid against Ambler and the Penn Central case in a very serious and systematic way, um, we will always be uh, 80% on the wrong side of these issues. Uh, you know, these one of these cosmic distinctions between what is a regulation and what is a taking. There is no difference between them, uh, but we insist that there is. And since there's no coherence in the distinction, we have to draw it at an arbitrary place. And that gets us into the situation of massive over-government regulation. What we've been able to do, I think, is to slow down the move um, in a way that makes it a much more entertaining struggle. And it is no longer an inexorable leftist move. So I, I do think that there's been some genuine progress on this particular issue. Uh, but I think given the nature of Supreme Court politics in general, and that it takes at least five people to have a single-minded, clear view on the subject, reversibility is not going to take that. But, you know, just to say, things that are going to be reversed. Uh, and I assume at this particular point, since some of them will come up next, well, I don't know whether she'd be on this. There is certainly the abortion cases. She's not going to hear that one. Uh, the affirmative action cases, she may not hear that one either. But I think those are two areas in which it's likely to see a major retrenchment. Do you agree or do you think, in fact, that uh, uh, this thing is going to hold over? And if it does hold over, is she going to be able to make any difference? That is judged soon to be Justice Jackson. Well, I do think there'll be retrenchment, and I hope so. I think I think the arc of history bends towards justice in these cases. And I also think, by the way, one last point in favor of the confirmation hearings, I think that for the last 40 years, ever, or 35 years, ever since the Bork, the Phil Bork nomination, Republicans and conservatives have used the confirmation hearings 
to convey a public message in favor of originalism, the success of which we see in this nominee, Judge uh, Jackson, sounding sometimes almost Scalia-like. And I, th- I, I mean, I don't know that she necessarily means these words about originalism the same way that you or I would, but the fact that even Democratic-nominated judges speak in the language of originalism, I think is a big sign of the success of the last 30 years of hearings. I th- maybe one way to, sub- to describe the last 30 years is Democrats at every nomination, they have fought over the nominee, both in favor or against. Republicans have by and large fought over the doctrine. Um, mm-hmm. now, now, obviously, we saw real fights this time, and I was surprised by the approach of some of the Republican senators, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But for each of the for every nomination, Democrats have focused on either getting Kagan and Sotomayor confirmed, or with Jackson, they played what in March Madness we'd call a prevent defense, where they were just trying not to allow points to be put up against Jackson. Whereas Republicans, whether it's their own nominees, whether it's future ones, they've focused mainly on using the hearings as a platform for discussions about the Constitution. Um, and that, that, that's been the main theme. And I think that's why Republicans have succeeded in making originalism the sort of the, the new normal of constitutional discourse. Ah, you know, you know, I'm only a faithless originalist. I mean, the phrase I used to like it was when Justice um, Scalia described himself as a minimal originalist rather than somebody who's exclusive. Let me just, since we're on the topic, indicate a couple of reasons why I think that uh, original and textualism, public meaning, and so forth, are an incomplete judicial philosophy, and why it is I think the hearings have actually had an unfortunate effect to make it appear that it's not only the dominant kind of approach, uh, but in some cases it's the only approach. Uh, The great strength of originalism in many cases is that it is a system which essentially treats language as being binding and having a certain degree of clarity, uh, so that what it does is it gets rid of what I regard as one of the great relativistic movements tragedy in the world. Well, nobody knows the meaning of everything. Every term is going to be ambiguous and so forth. They're not. Uh, And the originalists, I think, are right to sort of stress the clarity of original public meaning as being a worthwhile concept to understand. But there are at least two other issues that you have to worry about on this. And the first one is that textualism is not a complete structure. And for one to think that the only thing you do is dwell on a text is a mistake. From the very beginning of the Constitution, there's always is the general part. Uh, things like the police power are nowhere mentioned in the Constitution, but they must be read into it. And so what you have to do is you have to have a theory of contextualism, which says which things fall within the scope of the police power and which things do not, which means you start to have to be able to balance one kind of issue against another, where the issues that you're trying to balance are not always apparent from the case of the Constitution. Uh, you know, having a free trust and a fair trial is one of the many kinds of conflict, freedom of speech on the one one hand and national security on the other is yet another. And so it goes all the way down the line. And I think, in effect, uh, the originalists tend to underestimate the difficulty of these questions. And what's interesting about it is the living constitutionalists, they attack originalism, but they never actually explain how it is this is to be done on the implications of the Constitution. Um, my favorite, just long, one liner on this, is the police power is the name of three or so major treatises in the 19th century on constitutionalism before this was a living doctrine. And the word police power appears nowhere on the face of the Constitution. 
The second thing is that public law, like private law, has a doctrine of prescription. Things are done wrong at the beginning and they last long enough. And so the question then is, do you want to really go back again? And sometimes if there's a mistake, you do, and sometimes you don't. Uh, But I'm reasonably convinced that both Marbury and Madison in its reading of Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 and Martin against Hunter's Leslie in the reading of Section 25 were both wrong. And I'm not enough of an originalist to start to say, oh, gee, well, we better get rid of both of these kinds of cases and go back to a system in which it turns out the Supreme Court can have its appellate jurisdiction denied by Congress and that the state judges are the final arbiter of the meaning of the terms of the federal constitution, which was part of the great compromise that took place in 1789. Uh, So what happens is originalism becomes a kind of a selective ideology in which we do is we talk about modern changes of one kind or another. And here, let me sort of give kind of two things. Um, On abortion, I think the battle is going to be as to whether or not this thing has been around long enough that it settles in by prescription, on which I think reasonable people can certainly disagree. But the one decision that I find most disturbing recently was one by Justice Gorsuch and his peculiar brand of originalism. He's willing to upset settled expectations in the way in which constant institutions run. That is done both in Bostock and in McGirt, the latter case being far more important, where you want to change the nature of the judicial system after it's been in effect under treaties, having been read one way for close to 100 years, and now we flip it all over again. It's a great dislocation. So what I think, in effect, is that the originalism stuff, um, in many ways, uh, becomes a false litmus test, and that what happens is we have to understand that there is no excuse for example, taking the commerce clause and meaning commerce to mean manufacture when the two terms are opposites, and that completely upsets federal jurisdictions. I'm all in favor of things like that. But there are other cases where it's a bit more complicated. And there's a little bit too much oversimplification in the constitutional debate, which doesn't take into account the really hard kinds of choices that are going to have to be made by all justices, regardless of their orientation. So anyhow, that's my peroration and your reaction to it. My reaction is, uh, I agree that the last few years, the last decade or so of, of discourse around originalism has really highlighted the, the need for originalism to have a more explicit, substantive foundation underneath it. And one of the things I've enjoyed over the last like, almost two decades of debates, uh, whether it's the sort of the criticism of originalism from folks like Hadley Arcus on natural law or uh, Randy Barnett uh, in, in his arguments for more sort of libertarian principles built into originalism, your own writings, and now most recently, uh, Adrian Vermeule's writings. I, I mean, as, as, as you know, it's the premise of the podcast. I, I disagree with you on a lot of that and, and disagree with, with others, especially Adrian, but I've always appreciated the, art, the, the fact that people wanted to argue about what really does underpin these things and what, what is the, the context surrounding the Constitution that, the, that helps to fill in the details between the lines. For me, it's, it, it, it is and remains small-R republicanism, um, but, I, but I agree that, that conservatives are, are seeing more and more challenge to try to come to grips much more explicitly with that context. I think some of that also has to do with Elena Kagan coming to the court as the first modern progressive justice who speaks textualism as a first language. I'll be curious to see whether Judge Jackson contributes to that or, or not. I, I don't think she will nearly as much as Kagan has, um, but, but I think that, that you're, the main thrust of your point is exactly right. 
You know, by the way, one of the things I mentioned about Elena was when she was at the member of the faculty, both at Harvard and at the University of Chicago, she used to regularly attend Federal Society meetings and speeches. You used to see her quite often in the audience on these things, and I thought that was a great credit to her. And, and I think what it does to some extent is it does influence the way in which she goes. Uh, the other point that I would want to mention about about all of this is that I have a very different beef with respect to virtually every member of the United States Supreme Court. And that's the fact that they start with this as a distinctive public law doctrine. And I think Justice Jackson will do the same thing. Whereas I regard it as an outgrowth and an expansion of standard common law principles that were well understood at the time and are the necessary backdrop for doing the constitutional deliberations. There is a private property conception of common law, and you have to be be able to understand it in all of its variations. There is a common law notion of standing, uh, which bears absolutely no relationship to what the Supreme Court has conjured up out of whole cloth. Um, you, know, you want to find a bad opinion from originalist point of view, try Frothingham against Mellon and Massachusetts against Mellon, where this whole charade started to begin, utterly at variance with standard practice at common law in both England and everywhere in the United States at the state level and so forth. Uh, so I think what happens is you want to take this thing in a very serious way, you really do have to rethink lots of particular decisions and so forth. And, you know, look, give me one other illustration. Justice Kagan, um, she has this question of what we do about dismembering the electoral college with a series of low-level strategies which allow people to essentially break their pledges as electors. And I had a debate with this about Larry Lessig, and I think he has, you know, many interesting arguments as to why we want to have a national public vote as opposed to statewide votes. I think it's a hard question. But when it came up in the context of that case, uh, what Justice Kagan did is made a very weak set of arguments on originalism basis to make sure that the electoral college would not be deliberative, when in fact the way in which you got into the college was only allowing people in there who could debate. There were exclusions from who could become an elector, which were designed to make sure that the debates in each state would run well. But when it came to it, what she really said is, look, this thing has been going on like this for several hundred years. We had a decision in 1952 which said that bound electors are perfectly okay. If Congress wants to overturn this or if the United States uh, amendment process is going to overturn it, I can understand that. But don't count on us to do that. And I thought she was exactly right in that. And that was the unanimous position. Uh, I, I do think, in effect, that's a classic illustration where the originalist arguments go exactly in the opposite direction, and it would be foolhardy and dangerous for judges to get into this thing, because I think the other side on prescription is the phrase settled expectations has a certain degree of resonance, not only as an analytical tool generally, but it was sort of one of the terms that uh, basically appealed to humans back about the time that the Constitution was founded, and it was certainly imported into American um, shall we say, adjudication and constitutional thought. So I do think that we need to have this debate. Uh, and, you know, hailing the triumph of originalism leaves me a little bit nervous because I think all of these cross currents, which are extremely important, uh, somehow they get put to the side. And um, I would rather have the debate take place in a more academic way in front of the public at large and let them understand just how hard it is to kind of put all these things together so they can understand where there is or is not some kind of overlap between the so-called living constitutionalists and the traditionalists and so forth. I am not a libertarian, as you know, hardcore. I'm a libertarian like a classical liberal, which is a subspecies of libertarian, which is 
essentially allows for taxation in an eminent domain and lots of other things to take place that pure libertarians would not do. So, look, I think the debate has to continue. And, you know, if Justice Jackson started it, then it's a point in your favor about keeping the hearings going. Uh, but I would like to see this debate go on constantly. And I'd like it to see it go on in which people don't necessarily want to tie their views on the debate with a game of gotcha against various Supreme Court justices who, who get something wrong. I am very critical in many cases of Justice Scalia, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Thomas, for starters, on some of these standing issues um, and interpretive issues. And I think it's a good thing that people who regard themselves as I do on the same rough side of the political spectrum as these other people are willing to criticize them and to take them on on some doctrinal issues that need, I think, a more thorough and fair-minded exposition. So you just back up a little bit. Um, One last thing that occurred to me about the just thinking about why we have hearings and what we do. Um, one last point on this from me. As, as Jackson as J- Jackson has sort of per- perfected this two-step maneuver that nominees have. Step one is anytime you're asked a legal question, say, you know, I'm a judge or I'm a, you know, I hope to be a judge um, and, and therefore I cannot, I cannot answer your question. But then when they get a non-legal question, a question about policy, their answer is, well, that this that's a policy question. I'm a judge, or I want to be a judge, and so it's it's improper for me to weigh in on non legal issues. Okay, so you can't weigh in on legal issues. You can't weigh in on non legal issues. What it is, and that last one is ironic. As Scalia, so why have the hearing? Right. right well, as Scalia predicted in, in his or explained in his Casey dissent, the whole reason why the confirmation hearings have become just a big arguments over policy is that the judges have turned themselves into policymakers. So of course the senators will have some questions about that. But setting that aside. They won't answer questions about legal issues. They won't answer questions about non-legal issues. What's the point? Well, the point is that a judge's character and temperament is important. And even if 99% of the hearings are platitudes and kabuki dance, I still think it's worthwhile for the public and the senators um, to see the, the nominee navigate that process. I think it, it actually does give us a sense of who the judge is for better and for worse. And, and so I think that's good, too, because at the end of the day, I, I think I, I don't blame senators for giving presidents a little deference in their pick. I think with people being so polarized now over the parties being polarized over judicial methodology, I think senators are right to probably just vote against judges who they don't agree with on the merits. Um, but regardless, I think it's good for the senators to get a sense of character and temperament because that's important, too. And it, and it shouldn't just be kind of abstracted away. I agree with that, but I mean, the uh, decisive moment in the Clarence Thomas hearing was when he used the phrase high-tech lynching and did it with a set of moral conviction, what was really quite extraordinary. And then he does, that's not his personality. That's his personality when trapped. And then for 15 years, he decides not to answer a question, to ask a question of anybody. I think the rotation in, in argument on the Supreme Court got him to speak. It's a small point, but a critical one, sort of basically saying you've got to give the advocate four or five minutes to state his or her position is, I think, extremely important. Otherwise, the oral argument becomes another game of gotcha. And then sort of having questions in order of seniority or reverse seniority, where everybody gets three or four minutes to ask one or two questions, and then it's open season, does actually improve the quality of those kinds of debates. So uh, listening to what you said, uh, why am I in favor of a hearing when the judges duck the legal issues and they duck the non-legal issues? And it's a matter of temperament. And what we're seeing 
using his temperament under a set of circumstances which they will never find themselves in again uh, during the course of their judicial career. But I, I leave that. I think, Adam, what happens is that uh, you're going to clearly be right about that. I think people do want to see them. And one of the things I do think is perfectly appropriate after they get on the Supreme Court is to have a Supreme Court justice speak uh, publicly in many cases. I mean, many justices do it at the Federalist Society uh, or the American Constitution Society. I don't believe, by the way, the Chief Justice, I don't think ever does one of those, does he? Uh, not the Federal Society or the, the the ACS, but he's definitely given talks over the years. Definitely, yeah. yeah oh, I yeah. mean, and I, I think that's actually a fairly important thing for them to do. Um, and and it is a way. One of the advantages of that, it's not the cauldron. It's also it gives you some sense as to how they updated their mind. I mean, I remember one time I heard Justice Sotomayor speak at NYU. And I thought she said something that was quite perceptive. She said, look, I'm not going to give any public speeches for a year or two until they figure out who I am when I'm sitting here on this particular court. I think that's right for a year or two. But at some point, I think it's important that one uh, do speak. I think it's useful that people like Justice Breyer write books of one kind or another, or that Justice Scalia writes articles on his faint-hearted originalism, uh, so that you can have a more continuous dialogue without the fraught situation of a conversation vote um, turning on that. It's a very difficult thing to figure out how far you go um, on this stuff. I mean, do you really want to get into pitched battles with individual scholars who attack one of your individual opinions. I think that's probably a mistake. Uh, but I do think, in effect, somebody who says, you know, in the last 10 years, as I think about the arc of administrative law, it's clear to me that my initial pessimism slash optimism uh, is now misplaced. And I tend to think about these issues in the following way, referring perhaps to decisions that have already been decided, perhaps some of them even unanimously, uh, to do that. I mean, I, I do think having the Supreme Court justices speak and lower justices court justices speak as well. I also, you know, I, when I think of the Federal Society meetings, and I hope of the ACS meeting, I think one of the great achievements of modern time is that these men and women sit down and actually talk to students. Right? Have lunch with them. Meet with oh, them. Yeah. I'm definitely. really, I, I can't tell you, you know, it's a good CEO always walks the floors. And judges are too aloof as it is. And this is a very nice way for them to uh, get some feedback without having to commit themselves in future cases. So, I mean, I don't know what more we should talk about today, but uh, I would hope that we would try to get a little bit more civility. I don't think it's likely. I think the press is doing this. Let me just mention, if you recall, uh, the strategy that was developed during the Borkett hearings by his opponent is they asked kind of nasty legal questions during the hearing, but there was this nonstop program outside of the hearings by other advocates who constantly kept harped on all of the personal difficulties, shortcomings, and so forth. That is also, I think, something which is really quite dangerous, and it was something which I think made the Kavanaugh hearings such a disgrace. And I would hope uh, that the commentary outside the courts would become more civil and that there would be a penalty on those people who think that the appropriate way uh, to make a case is to blacken the reputation of somebody who doesn't deserve that kind of abuse. And I feel that's certainly true of Justice Jackson. I mean, I don't think she had the qualifications that Kavanaugh comes in, but she's a nominee. She has a distinguished judicial record, many would say. And I think that one wants to kind of keep this hearing up to the point where if she's going to be around the room. You try to talk about issues of genuine substance, which is, I think, what you want. Uh, you've always been big on civility, right, Adam? Well, I, I try to be sometimes better I, yeah, than I know others. you are, and you've succeeded. <laughs> I mean, you, you tolerate me for all these <laughs> years. Well, so um, 
I have a lot of thoughts on what you, what you just said, but let's, let's zero in on this. And we have just a few minutes left, but we'll just stick with this. I mean, the, you mentioned the Marsha Blackburn, Senator Blackburn's question about what's a woman. And, and by the way, I thought Judge Jackson's response was, was revealing, almost unintentionally revealing, where she said, I'm not a biologist. That's, that's a very, in, in today's day and age, with the arguments around gender identity, to sort of default to I'm not a biologist is sort of strangely out of step with the, the zeitgeist of the debate. Um, but that's that's not where I'm going with the question. I want to ask you about the other hot button questions, which were the line of questioning from Senators Hawley and Cruz on Judge Jackson's sentencing decisions. Uh, my, for, for what it's worth, my two cents or, or three cents would be this. Um, one, Hawley, uh, Senators Hawley and Cruz, I think we're both very, very much out of line with the, the, the tone of the questions and, and the way that they, I think, really badgered Judge Jackson. Two, well, I'm making, yeah. I well uh, so, so let, me, let me just roll this out. That's one. Two is that they're totally fair questions to ask about the, the downward departures on sentencing or the departure, not downward departure, but, but, but sentencing below what the prosecutors were asking for. I didn't find Judge Jackson's responses terribly compelling when she said, you know, to say, well, this is just normal for judges. I mean, anybody who has children knows that that, you know, other kids are doing it, too, is not a satisfactory answer. Um, I think it's important for Judge Jackson to really justify why she did what she did. And, And also, it's no answer to say, well, Congress left them with this discretion. That's a that that. Sure, you know, it, sure that gives us reason to ask whether Congress needs to fix this mess. But you can criticize both Congress for giving the judges this discretion and the judges for exercising the discretion badly. Uh, so that that's my general view of, the, of that line of questioning. What what did you think? My God, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, look, I, I think in effect that uh, one of the things you have to be very aware of when you start to cross-examine somebody is that you're on stage as well. And there's a danger that people like Cruz and Hawley, both of whom have tended to go over the edge on many different kinds of occasions, will do more harm to their cause by appearing to be supercilious and condescending and impatient and arrogant uh, than would be if they asked the question in the other way. Uh, I take the same attitude towards hearings that I do to faculty um, appointments talks. I mean, oftentimes you get somebody and they're young and a little bit inexperienced and they come before you and you think that they have made a mistake. Well, there are two ways to approach it. One is to sort of really hit them uh, between the eyes with everything that you have. And, you know, you've been around in this business for 10 or 20 years, and it's not really kind of a fair fight. Well, the other thing to do is to just ask the question in a kind of a non-indicative way and let them answer. And if, in fact, they fumble under those circumstances, there's now no excuse space that they were nervous, harassed, and so forth. So I believe that the appropriate form in all of these debates is to be essentially open-ended in the way in which you ask the question, and then to make your judgments afterwards. And I think also you're 100% right to say, yes, the system may be broken and we have to fix it. But the fact that the system gives discretion to the judges doesn't mean that we're not allowed to attack them on the grounds that we think there's some kind of, and um, shall we say, an abuse of discretion. And the other question, I'm sure that was behind the Hawley and Cruz line, 
because this was some form of racial preference. And, you know, that's a really explosive kind of question. I don't know whether you want to ask that question expressly or whether she should answer it. But I do think that the, the whole race issue is there. And one of the things I think that was, you know, relatively decent about these hearings is I don't think most of the people spent their time talking about Joe Biden's rather misguided promise of saying, I make a commitment to appoint a black woman to the next Supreme Court opening. I don't think it's appropriate for presidents to do that, but I don't think it's appropriate for people to regale somebody who's the beneficiary of that policy as though she herself had made it. And for the most part, I think this was pretty good. That was a debate that took place before the nomination was announced and did not. Am I wrong? I don't watch these hearings with any great deal. I don't think it was something which uh, uh, was front and center in the way in which the actual questioning went. Is, Is that a fair summary of my imperfect observation? Yeah, I didn't watch it wall to wall, but I watched he a lot would of it. I. And I, I watched a lot of it, and and I don't think it it came up because, like you said, it, it wasn't her statement. Um, and you know, for what it's worth, I, 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 mean, I don't like. Needless to say, I don't like outright, outright racial quotas of any kind. Um, I'm not. I'm a little sympathetic to the notion of of diversity on the Supreme Court in every respect: racial, um, sex, uh, professional geographic. Uh, and so I, I, I actually didn't, I didn't like what Joe Biden said, but if he had said it slightly differently, I might've been okay with it. And, and for what it's worth, I, I thought a lot of the pushback that it received sort of suggesting that he was obviously settling for a second class nominee was just not right. I, I thought that the, at least with judge Jackson and, and California justice Kruger, they were both I mean, on paper, well-qualified, incredible nominees. I disagree with them. And if I were a senator, I'd probably vote against Judge Jackson um, just because I disagree with her on the merits. But I, I think actually, if anything, the hearings showed that, you know, President Biden didn't necessarily settle when he when he picked Judge Jackson. And that, I think was probably another good benefit of the of the of the hearings after he had stepped in it with that statement. It would have been, I think, somewhat more effective if he said, I, I take this into account rather than making it a firm promise. Uh, but I think it was a good thing in the hearings that nobody decided to stress the race issue. It's yeah. difficult enough in all of these cases. I have another form of diversity, which I think was uh, badly served in this case. Uh, she's a Harvard graduate, if I'm not mistaken, from both the college and the law school. Right. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And there are too many Harvard members, uh, graduates on the United States Supreme Court. Oh, oh, you're this is sh- shameless, shameless Chicago NYU propaganda. I will oh, of course not have it, it is. No, I mean, we've got Notre Dame in the mix and so forth. <laughs> but I mean, it is kind of ironic. Uh, I don't know how much of a commonality there is amongst people of various situations. Uh, uh, Harvard's a great place in terms of its variety. Uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Jackson don't come out of the same mold and so forth. But it was somewhat ironic, I thought, under these circumstances. But again, uh, this is not something you should hold against her. Um, what we want you to do, ma'am, is to go back and, and reconfigure your education so that you graduated from, or wherever, well, Jackson State. Isn't that the place you ought to go, Justice Jackson? No, um, <laughs> I agree with you. It, it, it would count as a cheap shot. But if I were thinking about it, I, I mean, I, I think people have said that. I mean, I'll give you another bias, which I think is worth talking about. We have nobody on the Supreme Court now who has any military training. Oh, that's that's a very good point. Um, 
It is. And, and in general, I, I agree totally with your point. Just the, the range of experience leading to a Supreme Court nomination is now so... Um, it's all so, appellate so judging. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, the Solicitor General and an appellate judge are the only people who get appointed since when? Yeah. Um, has there been anybody who's not been in that mold since, um, uh, I guess it was, uh, certainly it was part of Stewart in the last 60 years? You know, that's a great question. It's got to be O'Connor. Oh, she was a no. She was an intermediate court judge in Arizona. Yes. She was oh, a judge. oh, sorry. I was thinking not not federal judge. Yeah, okay, you, you, so, that, that's the yeah. deviation. Yeah. And yeah. I think in many ways her distinctive contribution came not from her being a judge, but I think in effect the fact that she was, I think, head of the Arizona Assembly or some rather yeah. important yeah. Uh, political position, heavily influenced her views on two things. Um, one was on federalism, where she was more leery than most people about having the federal crush on everybody, right? You know, she would set the presumption against overriding local government. And then on the other hand, it made her make that terrible decision or in the Midkiff type case, where her attitude on zoning is shaped by the fact that she favored local officials dealing with local landowners. And so what you do is you see these two influences coming together, and it leads to, I think, pretty good results on federalism and less effective goods on the on the issue having to do with um, individual property rights. She did try to backtrack in Tilo, um, I think, which was to her credit. Uh, but it is an interesting sort of phenomenon. But I think she's the last person who had major experiences that were outside uh, of uh, the traditional government kind of judicial hierarchy. And, you know, just think of it, Felix Frankfurter, William Douglas, uh, well, maybe well, Hugo Black. I mean, Justice well, Jackson was a solicitor general, but most of the great members of the United States Supreme Court at that time were not judges, right? Yeah, and and, and as you said, there's there's downsides to that. And mm-hmm. Exhibit A is is Justice so uh, William O. Uh, Wild Bill Douglas, uh, with with the the sort of the so-called finalists for this particular seat, you know, Judge Jackson, but also Judge Childs in South Carolina, and California Justice Kruger. I thought Kruger was an interesting. So possibility I. because she was a state Supreme Court justice. Of course, before that, she had been in the U.S. Justice Department. And, and so she actually wasn't that much different. But there's there are a lot of interesting state Supreme Court judges. Uh, it would have been great you know, to see maybe the next Republican president pick somebody like Thomas Lee of, uh, of, of recently departed from the Utah state Supreme Court. Um, but Richard, I think after all this agreement, I think we've run out of things to agree upon, and maybe it's time to to bring this one to a close. I, I think it is. I mean, uh, we will disagree happily, I think, in the next couple of weeks uh, on a different set of topics. I'm looking Good. forward to it. And, and thanks, as always, to everybody for, for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Reasonable Agreements and Disagreements. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.